You're listening to Students of Success, a podcast that drives visionaries to pursue their passions and construct positive breakthroughs. My name is Ben James, and I'll be sitting down with creatives to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and how to make a meaningful impact. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Avangrove born and raised Matt Ricketts, and he discusses the difference between how he grew up and how children are growing up today. Ricketts graduated from Avangrove in 1998 and started teaching again in the 0203 school year. Ricketts embodies what it means to live your life to the fullest. He talks about his many adventures throughout life and what he does aside from teaching. Finally, get an inside look into how Mr. Ricketts makes his job a lot more than just teaching students how to woodwork. Yeah, so I've been teaching 16 years. Started teaching the 0203 school year um, quite a long time ago, but actually I graduated from Avangrove myself in 1998. Uh, was definitely not planning on coming back here. Most people don't know that my mom was actually a teacher here for 35 years. She was an English teacher. Um, so a lot of teachers in my family, and um, my wife's a teacher, my mother-in-law's a teacher, my dad's a principal, superintendent, retired. My mom was a teacher, retired, so it's kind of in the blood. But been doing it 16 years, and I guess I plan on doing it for another 16, 17 years, we'll see. Yeah. What, what kind of student were you when you were here? I was definitely uh, average. I was definitely a... Uh, Socializing came many times before uh, schoolwork did. Played sports, um, played soccer freshman year until then, just got tired of soccer. But uh, did track all through high school and did throwing events. But it was actually more into socializing and working than I was actually doing schoolwork. So I was definitely a college prep kid. Um, didn't take any honors or APs because in my time, we had very few honors. I don't even know if we even had an AP. There was like one section of calculus to take, and that was it. So it was, uh, it was definitely a different time than it is now. Your GPAs and class rank were not, what, uh, were not what they are today. And we had no opportunity for dual enrollment. So you just took your college preps and you get ready to go to college and took the SAT. Yeah, so, you know, how do you, how does your experience differ from experiences you see today? Because we get a, we get a lot of different types of, Kids, you know, I think it's a, it's more parent-driven now. Do you see that? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That the there's, there's a lot of students on the pressure with each other, but parents definitely the uh, pressure to get into the right school, um, the pressure to succeed, and even scholarship pressure. Because uh, I love telling a story that when I went to Millersville my freshman year of college, the whole soup to nuts, room board tuition, meal plan, everything was eighty-five hundred dollars. Didn't include books but $8,500. By the time I left Millersville, I think at that point, uh, incoming freshmen were going to be paying around 11000 So it was definitely increasing quickly. But uh, you know, now the idea of uh, scholarships, grants, it's, it's pretty difficult. And the pressure to take APs and dual enrollment, um, your freshman taking AP is definitely something that would have never come across my bow as a young person, or heck, even as a, as a young teacher in my 16 years here. That's drastically changed with I don't have the numbers, but I couldn't imagine how many kids we have taking AP now versus 10 years ago. Does that matter, though? Do you think that AP really does make a difference? Personal belief, not as much, because I've still seen a lot of AP courses, personal belief, a lot of busy work, which AP is supposed to be mimicking college, where college is a lot of times very little busy work, but large projects and portfolios where doing coloring maps yeah, you might score a four or five on the AP exam, but are you really mimicking college? Which, I, personally, I don't think so. Yeah, I think we see that a lot. You know, For me, my parents didn't come in and say, you need to take AP exam or an AP course, or you need to have a 4.0 GPA. It was more of, well, you want to screw up? Go ahead and screw up. That's who you're going to be. So, uh, you know, taking your class, you're also the kind of teacher who... An analogy I like to use is you're like a lighthouse. You're not going to go out and save every ship from drowning, but you're going to guide them in the right direction. So what do you do in your class that helps kids that, that you don't really... like? It's a, it's a really cool dynamic that you present, and it's unlike any other class. So what do you, what Well, to you piggyback on that, one of the things I try to really uh, implore kids for is to learn the intrinsic value of what you're doing. So don't do it just for a grade. And it'd be kind of cool sometimes if you could just throw away grades and you do it for the sake of doing it 
and doing it well. And a weird analogy I use with the kids, and they kind of get this, is like cutting your grass. You don't like to cut grass. You don't want to cut your grass. But when you do cut it, and a day like yesterday, you know, yesterday was sunny, 80 degrees, beautiful sunny day. When you're done, the grass looks awesome. You don't want to do it again, but you look back on it, and uh, and the grass is actually looking quite spectacular. And you can stand away and look at it and say, wow, this, this really looks awesome. No one's paying you, no one's forcing you to do it, but it looks impeccable. So teaching the kids to really enjoy what they're doing and do their best at it. So whether you're an experienced hands-on person in my class versus a student who's barely had touched a tool in their life, get you most out of it. So that's why I stress with the kids is grow your best. So I'm, I'm definitely a growth versus mastery teacher where I'd rather actually see growth in a kid than mastery. Mastery's great, but if a kid's already mastered the subject before they take it, mastery is not important, but growing from a 1 to a 10 is important, or growing from a 10 to a 20 is more important than a grade. Yeah, you see, I mean, I, I've been in your class and I've kind of had an odd transition. I think you've seen that too from being just, an, you know, one of those kids who's all about trying to make the most, or like the funniest joke and do something for his friends into somebody who wants to learn, I think you get a wide variety of kids, people who are actually invested in what you're trying to say and kids who would rather play Fortnite. Well, on that note, try to never give up on a kid. So if a kid is some squirrely freshman who never pays attention, never does anything, doesn't follow the rules within reason, still know that that is a living, breathing human being who will eventually have to be a... uh, productive member of society someday so you know trying to find the best of every kid and whether and one of the things I try to do when I first meet a kid within the first 30 days of my new class is know at least one personal thing about each kid to make a connection so if you I knew you played soccer so we talked about like market trends and I said how soccer was growing and there's things like the um, professional soccer league there's a team in Philly and so we'd actually bring in some business aspects and growth and how things are changing, but then we spoke about lacrosse. As lacrosse is becoming more popular, will it take over soccer? So when you actually can make it something relative to a young person, I think you can get a little more, uh, a little more out of them. Yeah, I think it's difficult, uh, and I also think that you know my parents talk about their experience growing up. What is your experience growing up, and how is that different from what? we have now because kids are changing and we talk about social media we talk about mental health with all this crap going on with mass shootings what's this what's the divide i think one of the big things is looking for looking to others for approval if you teach a kid that you know find out what pleases you and yeah things have changed a bit but what makes you happy versus what are you doing to make others happy um and you know being mindful of other people too because now it's about the likes so you could actually bullying has typical standard bullying has definitely gone down a great deal since my day but what are you doing to impress other people are you taking somebody else down in order to feel good about yourself you know which kind of does relate back to standard bullying but what are you doing to improve yourself What, what makes you happy so if you're not happy you're not going to be successful, but also understanding, have an empathy for others, because the mass shooting thing, you, you, you can't have empathy for others if you're willing to you know, do a mass shooting. So feeling, feeling others' pains, feeling others what they want is a pretty important thing, and teach, trying to teach kids that, to, to care about others, is in a way kind of almost... It's never taught in school, obviously. It should be a start at home, or it should be something, an intrinsic value that you learn. But, uh, yeah, I don't know where we could go with it in school, but that is, I think, definitely a change in in times. You know, the fact that, like, it's more about you. It almost reminds me of, like, joke about the 80s. The 80s generation was always the me generation. You know, faster cars, 
um, IZODs, Polos, things like that. The me generation, where now it's a, it's a great divide. There's a lot of kids out there wanting to do good things, but there's a ton of kids out there that are only in it for themselves. You know, the, the GPA race, the, the class rank race, that is something that is very foreign to me. And that's only come up here in Avogadro in the past like 10 years has been this GPA class rank shuffle. It's only been like, if you're a top 10, top 10 wasn't mattered. But now, you know, if you're three to four, that's a big deal. And so there's this big push at the end of the third marking period. And once grades got locked in, beginning a fourth, a lot of, a lot of seniors gave up. I'm like, well, why are you giving up? Well, GPA is locked in. Okay, so since she's trying to finish the year strong, no, nah, only doing it for a grade. Wait, so you're not doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for your own knowledge, your own success. So the empathy and uh, definitely your feeling for others is kind of ties into two subjects there. What are you trying to implement in your lectures or your classes that can try to give insight on this word empathy that you that you propose? Well, one of the things we do is a manufacturing project in the intro class, and I expect you know, there's definitely leaders and there's followers, but as the leader students, you have to be able to lead in a compassionate way and understand other people. So instead of having to bark orders at someone to do something, you would have to understand what will get them motivated and how to talk to them. So once you learn how somebody reacts to something or the best way to motivate them, you kind of understand them a little more. So that's one of the things I try to do. And then even in our advanced classes, being definitely grade mixed and um, skill level mixed, if I've shown you one or two things and you become an expert on it, somebody asks a question and I'm busy, I'll look to student A and say, hey, can you help him do what I showed you? And so far, typically most kids, okay, I'll show them. They're passing on that knowledge. And once you teach somebody else, and you talk with them. Some of you would never talk to the cafeteria or the hallway because it might be some senior and some sophomore. They don't play sports together, they're not in the same classes, and they have a common bond over literally something as dumb as gluing something up. You actually make a connection which somebody with somebody you never would have otherwise. Yeah, uh, you know, coming into high school, what I heard was that woodshop is easy and you don't really do much, Ow. so you got it. You got to sign up for it. And I was like, sweet. You know, I was told to sign up for German because Frau Paris is super easygoing. She gives you a bunch of candy, and you don't do much in class. But what I came to find out to find out was that it was one of the most valuable courses that I've taken here because it didn't prepare me to, you know, figure out what or how to multiply logarithms, which can be good. It depends on what you're going in, but it taught me how to function in society, how to have empathy, how to talk to others. And, and we mentioned this before, not be manipulative, but get what you want and be successful without being in this rat race. I came in and, and all I was told was, you have to be a business manager, you have to work nine to five, and that's what, that's what success is. And I look at you, and you come in driven every day, and you want to teach these high schoolers who you could pretty much just be like, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. But instead it's like, well, why do you think that way? And testing our minds to where instead of, I'm the teacher, I'm right, you just need to be quiet, it's, well, why do you think that way, Tim? or something like that, and you really are able to push a young child's mind in a different way, and, and you're able to follow your passion, because I feel like you even could have, you, you could be doing something completely different, because you have jobs on the side, aside from teaching, where you could make that a full-time job and be just as well off, if not better. So what is that, what is the importance of passion in the workplace, and what keeps you driven to continue to be teaching kids who you could easily say you're not worth my time? So part of that is what I was thinking that the student is it's always somebody's child it's somebody's kid and one thing so, so make sure it's, it's somebody's kid it's somebody has value to them you know no student should be devalued 
but also a thing I do on my own. Um, I try to stay in some contact with some, with grad students who've graduated to figure out what is going on in the real world, and I can bring that knowledge back to the classroom. Where you see you see a kid who was a complete mess in high school, you see him five or six years later, and they turned out completely great. They went to college. They did really well. They're successful. They are married, got kids, and some of the stuff you taught them in class sticks with them. And a kid who you could probably tell a bunch of teachers gave up on was like, oh, that kid's a jerk. He's lazy. But yeah, I was a lot different than now than I was in high school. In high school, I was kind of going the easy route. I worked hard outside of school. I liked money, but I wasn't definitely enough for the intrinsic value of learning. That came later. So if you had talked to some of my old high school teachers, some of them, they might have told you a much different story about me. So having that personal experience, you know, that kids will always change. And I say kids loosely because you know, you're dealing with the kids who are 14 to 18, close to 19 years old, um, but you're never giving up on them. And the kid can be a jerk one day, and then the next day you, you try to restart the relationship. The kid comes in, you're like, hey, what's up? Instead of the, the next day, I'm still mad at you. It's, hey, how you doing? And you reset that relationship the next day. But yeah, definitely never giving up on a kid is one of the things that I really strive on. And you say part of that finding something personal about them so you can make connections to what you're talking about. Today's discussion actually was uh, uh, soft skills because Mr. Jones and I, now Mr. Herman, go to employers. We need to ask them questions. What are kids lacking these days for your algebra, science, whatever, vocabulary? Uh, grammar skills and they, they've always always said the past few years has been uh, soft skills so you bring that up about soft skills and so tell the kids like hey if I come if I give you a dirty look because you interrupt me talking to another student you know during class that's because that's something in the work world that's not okay and you bring it back to them and say hey I was talking to employers and they said this is a problem you know, or hey I was talking to so-and-so that graduated a few years ago he said this is what's going on right now in Boeing so bringing back those real-world Scenarios is, is definitely a, uh, a good thing, but then it teaches you to stay in contact with the kids and not give up on them. So, you know, I, I have a few friends who I've since separated myself with, but they're still on that path. Um, you know, it, it, it ranges from the younger generation coming in, uh, doing things like jeweling in the bathroom or, you know, silly things like that where it's like either stop doing that because it's just as bad as a cigarette which is off topic or why do it in school because it's more of a the status it's not as much as doing it but how do you get through to kids like that where you where you could easily like I mentioned before just feel like you're not worth the time or the play or like the place where I can be teaching someone who really cares what I'm talking about because I've seen kids in your class and even for me when I'm being a jerk in your class and you're able to sit down and be like actually talk to me and that's when kids jaws drop and they're like what 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 i'm not used to people caring about me i'm not used to teachers caring about me so maybe that stems from something at home or well, i definitely say the home part because both my parents being in education you know my dad was he was, he was the principal superintendent route and mom was an english teacher and the definite experience, my mom actually says she taught here, she was student council, National Honor, Society, National Honor Society advisor. So I saw from a young age her relationship with the high school kids. You know, and you can see there's definitely a few teachers here now that are like that. So I grew up as a kid from the time I was, you know, five, six years old. I remember some of these other teenagers calling my mom, mom. That was her nickname with a lot of students. So you saw that connection and then you would run into people at the grocery store. You know, I was 10 years old, you know, obviously old enough to be aware, I and mean, she'd run into people from the class of 1985, so this is 1990. They're at five years graduated, and you'd see the connection. So I definitely saw as a young kid that the impact you could have on people if you did your job to the best of your ability. And so I, as, a, as a young kid, I saw that where my dad was a principal in Wilmington, and we'd go to the uh, church events sometimes on Sundays, and that's some of our community recognition, and you would see all these definitely inner-city Wilmington families who were very appreciative of my dad or you know, bringing his family to a Sunday church service that was recognizing something in the community. And 
you could see the impact of it. So if you did your job well. So that was so as a young age, I was definitely exposed to that. Um, which saying having parents as teachers, then also that translated at home because this might be sound a little foul, but I've uh, I've seen some teachers who I really really respect in the classroom, but then you see them at home with their own personal kids, and you're like, wait, if you ran your house anywhere remotely like you run your classroom, your kids would be way better. Like, your kids are horrible, your own personal children. Like, but in the classroom, you're a great teacher, and the kids really respect you and learn a lot. So why don't you transition, translate what you do in the classroom at home? That, as a young person, that always kind of confused me, going, wow, you'd never let people get away with that in your classroom. But at home, your kids are really bad. Your personal children are really bad. So my parents were definitely teachers in, at home and in their work environment. So I think that's part of where that came from. Do you think that you, you talked about the teachers who don't run the classroom and the home the same way? Do you think that stems from this almost rat race where it's like, I'm, you know, I'm making money, so I get to put the effort in, and then when you get home, you're exhausted, and you got to make dinner, or you got to do some laundry, or you got to get the kids to practice, and you're finally just like, I'm exhausted. Just go on your iPad, and you know, what psychological effect does that have on kids? Just being in front of the TV all day. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, it's almost like a third parent. Well, actually, that's one benefit of my ADD. I have had ADD since a kid. I was definitely on HD kids, but um, you know, my I have to consciously make sure I finish projects and do things on time because I, I'm one of those people I'll start ten things and finish none of them. But yeah, that that gives me a little bit extra energy, and I, I always feel too with the work effort to tag on to school. Going, you look at these kids' faces. Your mom and dad. I'm fine to say your mom and dad pay my salary. They expect me to work and try to teach you because they work hard for their money that's going into my pocket. So I must work hard to respect their money. And having children of my own, thinking like, how would I want my kids' teachers to be? How would I want somebody to treat my own child? My kids are 11 and 8. Yes, they're definitely elementary school time still, but how would I want people to treat them? And then ties into my home life, um, you know, trying to do the same stuff I do here at home. You know, Joe Finley said, I like money. I like to travel. So I'm not going to have a lot of stuff if I don't work or work hard. Um, you know, Avon Grove had a program where you know, they still do, still do is pay for your um, graduate program. So I have a master's degree in computers from uh, Wilmington University. I have another 60 credits past that. So it took a lot of work to get another another a master's and another 60 co- uh, graduate credits passed. But they're like, hey, if you do it, we'll pay you more money. So I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. But then that affords me to do stuff with my family. So kind of that give and take, the hard work in the beginning will pay off in the end, especially in the community we live in. You work hard, do your job, it will pay off. So trying to exemplify that. Yeah, so what do you really try to instill in your children that you want to see more of when you get freshmen? And you're just like, how do you not know that? You know, it's sometimes like, how are you so ignorant to that or something along those lines that you wish parents would would push on, or not push on their kids, but tell their kids. This you know? ties into, that really not finished your last question, but ties into that is, um, you know, being in the trades, I've had some other dads my age whose kids are getting older, or a few years older than me, uh, the dad, and then sons maybe getting to high school. You look at the 16-year-old kid who doesn't know how to use a screwdriver. I'm looking at the dad going, this one guy, he's a great trim carpenter, does all the big houses in this area. I'm like, how does your 16-year-old kid not know anything? Well, he didn't have patience for his kid when his kid was younger. So he had his kid never help him. And so now the kid's 16 and literally can only get a job at McDonald's because he doesn't have any hands-on skills. I'm like, well, your dad's the greatest, one of the greatest trim covers I've ever seen. The guy actually did all the woodwork in uh, Victory Brewing in Canada. But his kid doesn't know how to use a hammer. So I took that hard and go, all right, so whatever I do in school to show kids, I'll have to do at home and have the same patience because in the end, it will pay off. So if you show, like my own son now, like, and, my, and my daughter too, they know actually, she's eight, she knows, can't quite do it strength-wise, but she knows how to change a flat tire. She knows how to change an oil in a car. She knows how to jump start a vehicle. Uh, they've helped me install hardwood floors before. Um, my son just this weekend helped me change a chandelier in our own house, wasn't with a customer's house, 
but you know, explain this circuit breaker box. So for me, in the long run, I can just tell him to go down to the breaker box and, hey, turn off switch 20, and he can do it. So definitely making him work from the beginning, and it would be much easier to let him play Fortnite, let him play on the DS, let him, you know, get a phone and just go, go away from me. But in the end, it'll pay off, just like studying for the AP. You know, you could save yourself $4,000 potentially by getting a four or five. So you put the work in, you study, you do some pre-test, score four, then pull, cool, there's $4,000 you saved in college. So put the work in now, it'll pay off in the end. Yeah, uh, I, I see a lot of recognition for you because you, you tend to set yourself apart in a way where you're actually connecting with kids. And I mentioned this a little bit before, but what do you think you employ in your classroom that isn't really mentioned in others? Is there a focused, is there a focus more than on woodshop, or is there a focus on how to act in the world? So what are you, what are you doing that really sets well, you apart? I think a lot of yeah, a lot of how to act in the world while also doing things hands on. Yeah, and when you do something, do it to the best of your ability, and do it. And it kind of sounds weird to say, but like there's this saying, do it with a joyful heart. Meaning, instead of curmudgeonly going, oh, I gotta do this today. Just go, oh, doing this today. And in the end, it'll work out and you'll be happy. Because making dinner. Making dinner is not fun. But when you make a really nice eye roast, it's got like carrots and potatoes around it. You put the work in now when you're done, you have a great you know, roast beef sandwich with lots of au jus. So, trying to teach, hey, do the work now, It'll pay off in the end, and the process, if you learn this process, it'll trans, translate into so many other parts of your life. The idea, like you're planning a project, you have to go get an idea, kind of mimic some stuff off the internet, you have a plan, develop, but what material do you need, and then work on it, start it, but you're going to run into issues, how are you going to overcome those, those problems, uh, how are you going to polish the, uh, polish the turd that is your project? And sometimes you have to figure pretty creative ways to actually make it look like you meant to do it that way. Yeah. So that's definitely do it with a happy heart and you know, have fun at what you're doing because if you're not having fun, that gets picked up. So that's what I try to do with, the, with students is be positive in a good mood, which is a relative thing, but do it happily. And that translates into kids because kids can pick that up. If a teacher's grumpy, hates their job, doesn't want to be there, Kids will tell you know. Kids pick up on that real quick, and it's pretty amazing. They go, oh, Miss So and So, you can tell she has on beer, and you're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, nah, she's yeah. Or So and So, you know, they're never here on Fridays. They're never here on day five. And you go, really? And this one girl actually, she's like, she on her agenda, she actually had a, a date book of all the dates her her one teacher was absent, and they're all day five. So, wow, you you are very observant, young lady. That's, yeah, you proved me wrong. So, yeah, if you don't like your job, the kids pick up on that real quick. Yeah, I think, I think liking your job is, is a very hard thing to understand because we talk about what we do in school being parent-driven now where students are going into NHS and it's super competitive because the parents are telling them this is the fast track to scholarships. Or this AP course, yeah, I don't care if you hate AP U.S. history. This is what's going to make you successful. I don't care, you know, you know, take take the hardest class possible and I don't care if you don't like it. If you like art, don't take it because that's not success. That's not what that's not what is going to make you money. So how do you how do you or what do you tell kids to to follow their passion or do you tell them to take the harder course because it's more worth it in the end? See, yeah, you have to find what you want to do cuz and sometimes you find what you want to do by learning what you don't want to do. So I figured out pretty early on I did not want to work in an office space. Did not want to work at Heck, even some adults aren't real fun. So, like, kind of realized, like, I was pretty youthful mindset. So, if I had to work with old people all day, wouldn't really enjoy it. But you're only going to find that out sometimes by doing what you don't enjoy. So, you'd have to take the hard math class. Go, I could, like, myself, I can do calculus. I took Calc 1. It was like, I could probably do Calc 2, but I would have a real struggle. So, I'm not the strongest in math, into calculus or um, much higher level math. Basic math I'm very good with. But 
you gotta find what you want to do by doing what you don't want to do. But on the tail end of that, you gotta find your passion in something, and you have to be good at what you want to do. So if you want to be an artist, but you suck at painting, you would never know you can't be an artist because your hand skills are so poor. But you could work in the art field, but you would only know that by taking art class. So that's where it does. It's pretty painful. You hear some of those kids say like, "Oh, I have to take three APs next year." I'm like. You're a junior. Why are you taking three APs? Cause my college and it'll boost my GPA. Wait, you're not taking AP U.S. History because you love history. You're just taking AP History because a GPA boost. Do, do you do anything? With, are you gonna do anything on history in your life? No, no. Okay, then why are you doing it? But yeah, high school should be a time for students to take some a myriad myriad of courses to figure out what they what they want to do. So I think looking at you, you do what you love. You come in every day, and and you're generally pretty happy. I don't. There's not many days when you come in, you know, pissed off, and you're like, I'm not teaching today. What was your journey to find what you loved, and did you have a mentor or, or some monumental moment? Because you said you were just an average student, and I don't know how that translates into an above average teacher or an above average person in the workplace. Well, a two part answer to that because be kind of be an average student. In high school, it kind of actually, I kind of understand what a lot of the average kids feel. Because right now, high school being so competitive, the average kid can kind of be left behind because they're not taking the APs. So you can talk to them and say, yeah, you'll eventually grow out of it. And I, I've used analogies too, like some of the kids remember, oh, remember so-and-so when, you know, in ten, when we were 10 years old, he was the best kid on the lacrosse, lacrosse team. But in high school, he's kind of average. He starts, but he's not like, you know, one of the starting lineup guys. He starts some games. He starts a game against games like Oxford. It's mm -hmm. kind of an inside joke because, yeah, that game. But, uh, you know, you, you develop at different times. So you, some of those analogies explain to a kid, hey, you, you'll develop this later. But I didn't realize until college the value of education and how I liked learning more things and where school got me with that. But there was actually a pretty poignant moment. We had to do actually a, a manufacturing lesson for disabled kids at the Lancashire Lebanon IU over at Conestoga Valley High School. And I was a sophomore Miller, so my degree is applied engineering. And we had to do this, this manufacturing demo set up and the kids had to use it. And these kids were great. One kid was blind and he, we're trying to do, we're doing screen printing. And I, I wasn't thinking about the kid being blind. And we're screen printing uh, Conestoga Valley CV on this, uh, this uh, t-shirt. And I was like, yeah, you gotta pick a color. He's like, I don't care. I said, you gotta pick a color, like blue, we have blue, red, and yellow, or something like that. And he's like, I don't really, I really don't care. I was like, you have to pick a color. He goes, turns to me, he goes, I'm stinking blind. I was like, huh. oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> but here's a kid who's you know, struggling to do something, he's blind, but he, and he did it in a joking manner. He yeah. was really in a good mood. I'm like, I like school. I, I remember having somebody that, you know, I, I enjoyed learning stuff, and actually Clint, Mr. Jones, Clint Jones, was actually one of my teachers here at Iron Grove. And so I think some of my teaching styles from him where you could talk to him one minute about crazy chemical finishes on a piece of wood, but then the next minute you could talk about recording studio stuff in L.A., then the next minute you could talk about, you know, a Ford truck transmissions. So realizing that you could do this job and be, in a way, a benefit was being really broad knowledge-based um, so some of those things kind of came together. So really it was like sophomore year that I decided, of college that I decided that, you know, what, what I had myself in high school and what I wanted to return back. So that's one of the big things I see is when you had a, a good impact on a kid and you see them years later and they still remember stuff from your class and or um, stuff you did actually was impactful or somehow benefit them in the long run. Not benefit them like, oh, they passed the test. But benefited them in the long run, whether it be career choice, college choice, or uh, just general life choices. Yeah, that's not, there's not much of a bigger impact than you could have on that, than that. So it's been difficult even for me to decide what I want to major in. What do you tell kids? Because at 17, how do you know what you want to do for the rest of your life? There's a, there's a handful of kids who are like, this is what I want to do. Whether that's actually from them or their parents, I don't know. But I don't see a ton of kids going, yeah, I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. So what are you telling kids about 
their major and their outlook. What I would definitely say is you don't waste time in college because it's so expensive. You kind of have to get in and get out. So you almost have to pick a, a broad degree because you have this a 17-year-old kid who's applying in the fall and also now a lot of students applying in the summer before senior year. They don't know what they want to do. Um, so sometimes if the kid doesn't know what they want to do, part of I feel I personally feel my job is to give some suggestions. Like one um, discussion we just had was uh, Virginia Tech, their engineering program. Everyone enters in freshman year as a general engineer, but then you don't pick what you want to do until sophomore year. I know we're talking to Bryce DeMuth, Yale's the same way you go in undeclared and then you declare a major for your, for your sophomore year. So, but yeah, get in, get out because of cost, because you don't be saddled with debt the rest of your life. And the old uh, saying used to be, even through the 80s and 90s, was, ah, it doesn't matter what you go for, just get a degree. The degree is all that matters. But now, everyone's got one, so you gotta pick somewhat of a valuable degree. It would definitely not be in art history. So the kid ever came to me and said, hey, I want a degree in art history. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> Unless you had a really, 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 really rich parents or rich uncle who's going to pay for it. But you find something that's kind of roughly in the field you're interested in. And there's nothing wrong with going to Delaware County community for a year and kind of figuring out what you want to do. But uh, definitely one thing I think we as a school are a little shortcoming on is getting kids to think about their career choices throughout their time here at the high school and we don't really encourage kids to go out for career exploratory activities. You could sit on a computer and go, like, oh, I took this test and it said I should be a tree surgeon. Like, you don't know what that is. You wouldn't know if you'd like it. So go out and actually work with somebody for a few days. And then, but it ties into the competitiveness of school. You don't have time for it. The idea of a summer job or weekend job, between National Honor Society, student council, AP exams, AP tests, you don't have time for it. Then throw in a sport or two and you're playing year-round. You don't have time to work to figure out what you do and don't want to do. So that's something that we've kind of gone away from, the summer job, as far as uh, helping you make choices of your career choice. Yeah, so I want to go in a little bit of a different direction, and it's still along the same lines, but I want to talk about people in jobs, because we mentioned jobs a lot, and it's helped you, but something I notice is that when people in the same generation as myself get into jobs we really relate it to back to this instant gratification of okay well I'm not successful and you know I've been in the same position for eight months and I, I just want to quit I don't like it here and then you look at them and you're like you've been here for eight months you know how are you gonna make a difference so I think that's a difficult thing to deal with and even if I'm in woodshop and you know I was making that cabinet and I'm not, I'm not super savvy, like, with my hands. You know, I came in, and I was more of, a, like, a mental guy instead of very handy. And even for me, I was like, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, I, I'm done. And for you to come back and be like, it's a process. It's a marathon. What do you tell kids? Because it's difficult when we are basing our value off of the amount of likes we get or our worth off of how many people retweeted our tweet that we sent out? Well, the big thing, and I bring this up multiple times through a semester, is the cookie experiment. You know, that your biggest success, the factor of success in life is the ability to wait. So put the work in, they'll pay off in the long run. But the experiment they did with uh, young kids and said, here's a plate of cookies, put a, here's a plate with a cookie on it. You can have this cookie right now, but if you wait, I'm leaving the room, I'll come back with a whole plate. So if you wait five minutes and don't eat this one cookie, I'll bring back a whole plate of cookies and you can have as many as you want. But if you eat that cookie when I come back, you don't get the extras. So the kids who are able to wait for the person to come back in the room with a dozen cookies on a plate, yeah, these are three, four, five-year-old kids. Long-term studies show they're the most successful. So trying to enforce that with the kids that you put the work in now, it'll pay off in the long run. And so the process, it... It takes a while, and it's hard to ingrain to a kid time, because right now I like to say as to our seniors, you're so this is now mid bay you know, first senior year, and you are as close to graduating a four year college as you are eighth grade Civil War, which is one of those seniors look at you crazy. It goes pretty fast. Right now things seem like forever, but in the grand scheme, as you go further along, it's a much slower slower pace so the idea that things take a while and it'll be paid off in the end 
is something almost you got to learn on your own. But you try to use analogies. I said the one is in mid-May. Hey, eighth grade civil war is as close as you graduating a four-year college. And seniors look at you like, whoa, that wasn't that long ago, the civil war. But uh, it's like four-year, graduating four-year college is not that far away either. What do you regret about your high school experience? And if you could go back and go back to 15 or 16-year-old Matt Ricketts and say, do this, what do you, what do you tell yourself? Huh. I don't know. I'm pretty darn fulfilling. I, I did plays. I did sports. I, I worked. I, the one thing I probably would go back and say, maybe take a little bit more... Um, a little more strenuous of a course load because I was fine. If they said, "Hey, take college prep," you know, finish and trig pre calc. That was that was college prep. Senior year was trig pre calc, college prep English. Uh, yeah, science. I took earth based science, earth and space with Mr. Camby. Um, but I definitely probably would have been a little more um, on the ball as far as um, the academics because I had a, had a very fulfilling uh, high school career. So between work and socializing. So you talk, you said that you did plays and you did sports. That's not something that we see a lot with kids, which is unfortunate because even for myself, I'd like to do plays, but also it comes into that status thing where it's like, oh, the play kid, the theater kids and the sports kids, they, they don't hang out. So how has that changed? Because that, that kind of stinks, you know? Well, another part of it is the size of our school. And... Even though we like to think we're more diverse than we used to be, the polarization, like if you play soccer, you play soccer year-round. You have a, a spring club, you have summer club, you play soccer. Very, very, very few kids play both. Um, and kind of surprising when you see a kid who's like Zach Augustine who starts soccer but also starts lacrosse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of kids that do that. So, And part of that is the time constraints and the pressure you guys are under these days. You can't do a play, you can't do the fall school play and play soccer or football. Coach would never allow it. You couldn't make after school practices. No one's willing to give up their time. So football coach says, no, you have to be here. You can't miss a day. The play director says, no, you can't miss a day. So I go outside of the polarization, which kind of stinks, because then you can't find out what you want to do. You know, I enjoyed doing the plays, and now you could almost see that there's kids that only do theater. And... In a way, sometimes they wouldn't welcome other kids into it. Not that this is high school musical, but uh, they kind of don't welcome somebody else into it. Vice versa, you know, the kid on the lacrosse team with somebody new coming in, you know, are they going to welcome it? Because some of us got these boys have been playing together since they were eight, nine years old, or maybe um, soccer, same thing. So it's kind of definitely a polarization and not allowing you to figure out what you want to do and allow, allowing you to take a wide spectrum of things you enjoy. And I think you know, doing some of the theater stuff for me, we built the sets, but also acting the plays kind of gives that. Uh, I use that in my teaching style, you know, presenting yourself, being loud, boisterous, or um, sometimes playing a character. You know, whether it be uh, you know an accent or something, just messing with the kids in class. You know, having that background is, I think, beneficial. What do you think? was more beneficial for you because you talk about polarization and sometimes kids can only pick one what you know this is a really difficult question because there are positives and negatives to each if you can pick one what do you tell kids to go into or do you tell them to try to try to squeeze in both i would definitely try to squeeze in both but in a way you know sports have definitely changed because now you have to concentrate but that camaraderie and learning how that you have to rely on other people and that other people are relying on you. Um, Say so definitely that sports route. So my, my kids, 11 years old, playing in their school, they call it midget football. What do you guys playing? They're equivalent of Wildcats. And you're relying on other people and um, getting yelled at by the coach because one kid didn't do the play right that everyone gets yelled at and saying, even though you did nothing wrong, they didn't go well and everyone's held accountable. And that's actually a pretty real-life scenario your business your company one guy screws up and the client's unhappy it's unhappy with the whole company not just the one person who screwed up i think that's important um you know i've definitely learned that from soccer i think playing one sport however for me has led to a lot of 
downside, in fact, because my body starts to break down because I'm just on that one track. And I think mentally, I'm trying to relate this back to a mental thing where if you're just doing theater or you're just in student council, your mind is going to break down because you don't have this outreach and you don't integrate. So, you know, do you travel? Maybe that's the way you integrate new things. Have you traveled anywhere or have you done something out of your comfort zone that you wouldn't normally do just to just to change things up? Yeah, definitely. Like even speaking of changing things up, like I enjoy sewing. I don't sew often, but like if something needs fixed, I can sew it. And so it seems weird that I seem to, you know, have the aura of a, of a shop teacher. But I'm like, you should be pretty broad in what you're able to do. I can install an operating system on the computer, run a CNC machine, but also still replace the engine in a diesel dump truck. So part of that is getting a broad range of experiences. And I try to do it with my, my own children. They've been in 42 states. I've been myself in, uh, in 47 states. And uh, understanding something from somebody else's viewpoint is pretty hard today because you're all, usually around like-minded people and it ties into social media. You know, you're, you're only friends with certain people on, you know, my friends on Twitter, but uh, people follow you, you follow them that are like-minded. Or if somebody starts spouting off something you don't agree with, you just unfollow them and that we don't have to hear it, which is not a good thing because then all you hear is people that sound exactly like you and you won't learn anything from them because they know the same stuff you know. Um, but this, the singularity of playing a sport, you're right, playing soccer, you're good with your legs. But how's your upper, how's your upper body strength? Mm-hmm. You know, are you are you actually a well-rounded athlete? And some of the best athletes are actually the most well-rounded. Whether it be you're, you're a NASCAR driver, but yet you can still do you actually do Ironman uh, marathons. You because know, you are so physically in shape, but you're also pretty good with your body. Are you a football player who can uh, you can actually do ballet? And there are some of the most successful people. So yeah, the polarization is not something. Um, is is is, is I, I see a definitely a problem coming down the line for schools and country and society. Do you do you strive to get out of your comfort zone because uh, you know you, you don't you're not very one dimensional. You say, I know how to sew, and you look at you look at somebody like yourself, and you say, Why would you or how would you know how to sew? Do you try to get out of your comfort zone as much as possible? Does that help you to grow? Yeah, and that would definitely tie into the fact of liking liking to learn. Find whatever you learn something about, whether it be, um, I showed some students a video that I learned of. Um, this guy was a homeless person, a hobo, who actually traveled the country on trains, and he had videos of himself. That was very appropriate, but he had videos of himself of what the best train cars were to ride and cars you should not ride on. So this guy's riding across the country, making a living, being homeless, riding trains. And so now <laughs> Mr. Herman laughs at me, but uh, certain angled green cars, there's a whole sleeping compartment inside and you'll never get caught. So in case I ever like have to go on the run and you know, hire from the police, I can ride trains across country now. Because I watched some videos on how to ride trains and not get caught. It's illegal, don't do it. But that could ties into being craving knowledge and craving others' inputs and asking, and uh, one thing I always do is when students who graduate come back, hey, what would what'd you learn? Hey, what would you tell yourself 12 months ago? And they're like, oh yeah, I would tell myself that. So part of that is me learning from them. So you're d- definitely striving to go outside your comfort zone and try new things, whether it be cooking or baking a cake, um, ironing clothes. Mr. Herman makes fun of me because I iron my clothes every day. And I was like, well, of course, you have to iron your clothes. You can iron your sheets also before you put money in the hall closet. He doesn't agree with that, but I do. So, yeah, definitely, it has to be something you make a point of is going outside your comfort zone. I think even now, you know, I I know that gender equality has come so far, but you know, it, it you're taking you know those are your values. You, you can go home and sew. You can go home and cook why you know there's a balance here because you talk about theater you talk about sports those are sometimes to people you don't think of someone like you uh who's dipping their toes in both 
So do you think there's a, you, that you need to have balance in whatever you do? Like, if I want to go out and hang out with some friends on Friday, I know that maybe before that I need to be studying. If I am in an AP course, can we have that little bit of time? Like, just being one-dimensional. Do you think it's more important to be a overall gr- like good student or be great in one thing? No, you definitely have to be good across the board. Whether you're pretty solid in math, you're pretty solid in social studies, and you're pretty good in English is way more beneficial. Um, but a term we actually got from uh, Mr. Jones's dad was they call them um, paper tigers. People that on paper look great. So if you're applying to an engineering firm and you got A's and everything, your transcripts look great, you're taking calculus three, you're, you've had these great internships, but in real life you can't do anything you're useless or you're really good at school but when it comes to real life problems you can't solve anything because you can't you've been so pigeonholed you can't draw from other sources and find resources like one of the things actually um, we fixed somebody's inflatable chair the other day it's actually Miss uh, Machetta's chair and we're talking about you know, how to use super glue to actually fix cyanacrylate to actually fix a uh, flexible chair but then we need it hardener so I was like well actually we could use baking soda it would instantly harden it Kids are like, what? Well, you got to know some chemistry. Yes, you, you're in wood shop, but a chemical background knowledge is really important. Or Stephen Lewis and Kevin Francis were actually finishing a table, and they're using polyurethane. He's like, hey, can't we just thin it with paint thinner? I was like, oh, actually, polyurethane is actually a polymer that actually hardens up. It doesn't evaporate, so you can't actually thin it. And once it hardens, it's a rock. So like, oh, I didn't know about that. I was like, yeah, chemistry is pretty important. Um, or history. So yeah, I try to strive that with the class is bringing a lot of random, random outside information that relates to what we're doing. So students kind of go, oh yeah, okay, I need to know more than just this one thing, and that what I learn in other classes could help me in other ways. So, you know, I I don't want to address the problem and get into it too much, and we we gently touched on this before, but. What, what is the divide in high school now? You talked about mental health a little bit, but we see kids acting out and not having the social and mental strength to be able to say, okay, that's not right. And we see things like happen in, that happen in Parkland and down in, in Texas. What, what are we struggling with and what are you seeing in students? Because it could very well happen here. Somebody could walk right in and, and we have, you know, it's, I've talked to the security guards and they say, it could happen any day. And I grew up in Wilmington and in Wilmington, honestly, they were happier there because they knew that they were growing. Here, it's almost like fantasy land. Chester well, County, you know, it's, it's wonderful because you have everything. You don't have to go and say well, I don't know if I'm going to have that today, and I should probably, or I can go play with my friends past 5 o'clock. You know, so what's, what's the divide there? One of the, one of the big things is uh, understanding hardship. Because in a, in a good way, many of the kids at Avangrove have never really experienced true loss. You know, both their grandparents, since the grandparents are still alive, their parents are, whether they're married or divorced or together, they have a normal household. So when they have a hardship, sometimes then they're not able to deal with it because they didn't have hardships growing up. Um, you know, mom and dad tried to make things too nice for them. You know, everything was fine. They never wanted to talk about even problems, even even something as simple as financial problems. Like, oh, you know, you know, dad's changing jobs, so money is going to be tight this month. And a kid would go, okay, so dad's got a new job and we're between paychecks, and so we got to make sure we're extra, you know, extra tight with the money. A kid would understand that. And so I'm like, yeah, dad's got a new job, mom's got a new job, but we're going to be tight with the money this month. The kid would understand, okay, things get hard, but they'll get better. So if you never experience that, when you have some hardships when you come, in, come into high school age, hardships happen and you don't know how to deal with them, you might be a little lash out more than you should. Instead of having to learn how to deal with those hardships and say, this too shall pass, this will, the things get better, which as an adult, you kind of realize, yeah, you know, it sucks now, but it'll be better in a month or two, or in a year, or, or in a day. But when some of these kids now, who haven't had the coping skills to deal with that, 
when their first girlfriend breaks up with them or something happens, it's a huge, huge deal because they've never experienced it. And they lash out. So, and then it ties in with the empathy thing because you have to understand other people. Like, oh, yeah, I, I understood my, I would have put my dog down last year. So the fact that you're really grumpy in a bad mood today because you just had to put your dog down that you had since you were five years old, yeah, that really sucks. You're probably really unhappy. You're probably really sad because you miss your dog you've had since you were a little kid and now you're 15, 16 years, old, 16 years old in high school. But you just have that empathy. But if you've never experienced that, you don't know how to help other people, deal with other people who understand where they're coming from. So the empathy thing, because you could never hurt someone else if you under truly understood how much that would actually hurt by hurting them. At least I feel that way. When did you really understand what it meant to be empathetic? Did you have some moment in your life that taught you, or maybe it was just your childhood in general, that was like, things aren't going to just come this easy. I'm not going to be able to go and just have everything I want because my parents make a killing. You know, what? what is that like for you growing up? One of the things, actually, I think I learned, like my sister was actually considered, uh, back in the day, it was a different terminology, but, you know, uh, special needs. And we did a challenger baseball. So it's baseball for uh, intellectually disabled kids. So she was my older sister, but then you, you saw she was functioning and she went to a special school up in, um, in downtown, but she was communicative and you know she could take care of herself but she definitely uh she wasn't going to college and you know she's going to work a uh not to sound me but a menial job the rest of her life but then you saw kids in much much worse condition than her kids that actually would never make it you know, so she, i was 10 she was 15 they're doing like this it's called challenger baseball sponsored through the little league then you saw kids who were never going to make it past the age of 17 or 18 uh, spina bifida children or cystic fibrosis and you're going as a kid going that person is really nice and pleasant and as a 10 12 year old kid you're going that young person's only going to be alive for the next five years so you're like well if they're going to be alive for five years at, at max we should try to make it the best we can so that was one of the things i think as a young person seeing a lot of other disabled kids and knowing how hard they had it and how easy i had it definitely changes your mentality yeah, I think I've had that. I think it's. I think it has a lot to do with perspective, and just you know, I, I was dealing with stuff a little bit earlier this year, and I went to talk to a girl. We started a thing called Tag here, where you sit with people who are sitting alone, and I I went to sit with a girl who was new here. She had gone to Coatesville, and I just said, "Can I sit here?" She was like, "Yeah, sure." You know, she would never th think that like somebody wanted to sit with her because I came up to her. And she, and at the end of the conversation, she was just like, yeah, people think I'm a dyke, so they don't talk to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, that is terrible. But I, t I start talking to her. We introduced her. I introduced myself. She, she introduced herself. And then I just dumped my problems on her. And she just kind of looked unfazed by it. And I was a bit confused because usually I'm, you know, I want people to listen to what I'm saying. And I say, so, so what's your story? And, and why, why did you transfer? She goes, well, I'm living with a foster family right now. I go, yeah, why is that? She goes, I, I didn't really like Coatesville. I was like, well, do you at least like your foster family? And she said, nah, don't like them at all. They're always on their phones, and they're nothing like me. So I was like, well, then why did you move? She's like, well, my dad actually raped me and impregnated me. And that's when that ball drops, and you click, and you're like, man... I need to realize my problems and say, okay, I need to help people like this because stuff happening with your girlfriend and, you know, some, some things that you may think is like a big deal and then you talk to people who have real world problems, you're like, wow. And that's why I think going on mission trips or traveling and seeing things in the inner city and saying, Southern Chester County is literally like an amusement park. Because, you know what I mean? I've been saying this for years in my class. I said, our normal is not normal. When you leave these walls, you understand that. You know, the idea that you live in the, on average, the richest county in the country, richest county in the, in the state, and the ninth richest on average household income in the country. Our normal is not normal. And, you know, the... And that actually goes along with the tracking route. Like, if you're all you're doing is taking APs, 
you're only ever around kids who are AP kids. You're not going to take classes with a diverse group, which I kind of think is a benefit in my class because you get kids who are juniors taking three APs with a class in the same class with a freshman who is barely passing, you know, remedial level classes. And they actually have to work together in a group and they actually get to talk to each other. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, so bring the junior who's in three APs down a notch and then also bring up the freshman because then they're also, they're tracked on the same route. They're tracked with the other kids like them. So they think it's normal to be, uh, you could say, antisocial, doing behavior that's actually not conducive to a group environment. But then they get positioned with some kid, some other student who is very cordial, nice, outgoing. And they're like, oh, oh, this is how I should act. They're like, well, hey, you don't have to be a jerk all the time. Just because all your friends are never in your class is a jerk doesn't mean you have to be. Then the AP kid saying, hey, you're really lucky. You're really lucky that you can take these courses and you go to Abigrove. Not everyone's so lucky. So kind of mixing them up does help. Give a little bit of perspective in life. Have you seen Avangrove come miles since you went here, or has it? Have we always had the same kind of mission statement? Like, I know being in your class, you had touched on the woodshop teacher before. You know, he's a cool guy, but he he didn't really put in the same passion and hard work that you put in your class. Where, you know, you you literally almost do homework, and it's just touching up on topics, but you come in with something new every day. Where it's like, I wonder what he's going to talk about today. What's the difference between where you were sitting 20 years ago and now where kids are sitting today when, you know, they're almost blind to the fact that this is amazing, how, how good we have it? It's hard to express that to a kid. They've only ever known this place. And when Mr. Deshaun, our current principal, came, I talked with him at lunch one day saying, one thing that's really odd with Avangrove that if you ask, walk into any class, 95% of the kids have been here since first or second grade that no one, very few have actually moved into Avangrove. But in the end, the fact that their parents did not go to this school, and Mr. Deshaun looked at me really confused. I was like, yeah, it's one of those strange demographics with Avangrove. Again, it has, makes things a strange perspective. Um, but the, the big change, I think, has been the idea, of, and I hate to use this term, but a little bit of elitist. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that, the fact that it's elitist in the sense of entitlement, that I go here, I deserve this, or I deserve my teacher to actually let me turn my assignment in late. And it was pretty clear. Pretty clear it was due on May 19th. It was pretty close on Schoology. You had 10, 10 chances to turn it in, and you didn't. You're not going to turn it in. Well, I, I have the right to. No, you actually don't have much rights at all. You were required to turn it in turn it in last Friday. You didn't. Sorry about that. So that's definitely a sense of entitlement of the students has, for many of them, not all, but many of them, has been a huge change. And actually, for me personally, kind of a troubling change. Yeah, I think that entitlement doesn't just stem from something like social media. I think it has a lot to do with your life at home with parents saying, Johnny, you deserve better than that. Go tell her that you're better than her because we make more money than that teacher at school. And they'll come in and they'll, you know, it's just like, you know, I have a little job as a pizza delivery boy and it's just to make a few bucks on the side. And this lady will complain, she'll say, I ordered this 45 minutes ago, I want it for free. And you call your boss, you say, dude, she won't stop giving me a hard time. He's like, just give it to her for free. And that's what we see. It's these parents pounding away at these teachers because they're managers, but they're miserable. And the teacher's just like, okay, it's not worth my time. If you if you want your kid, like if that's how you want him to get by, fine. If you want him to override him into a class where he's going to struggle, fine. And the teachers are just starting to give up because the parents that have grown up, I think it's because they grew up in a time where they were struggling and they don't want their kid to have that. And they knew they know now the importance of getting not your way but setting yourself up so what do you what do you think about you know how do you change the mindset of a student it's hard to change that mindset because when you're born and bred with it and you've experienced it since you were a little kid you know the mom marching on the field saying my kid deserves to play like "Mm, your kid probably should play but your kid's not that good they don't deserve to actually play 
um, or something that really bothers me, like the cafeteria, kids that leave trash, whatever. Yeah, the custodian don't get that. Like, no, he's here to pick up stuff that might get dropped or, like, incidental stuff. You need to throw your trash away, but then you look down upon someone because their position in life. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a great learned at home and learned through experiences at home. And you do that, and you're devaluing that other human's existence. You know, where the lady complained about the pizza, yes, it's 45 minutes. Like, that's not that long ordering a pizza on a, on a Friday night. But, you know, she wants it for free, and then for you as a delivery person, she's not going to give you a tip. Like, okay, fine, it did take 45 minutes. It's not as long as it should be. It's Friday night, but I drove out here. I'd use my car, my gas, my time, and I'm just a high school kid, and now I'm not going to make any money on this trip. Awesome, thanks. While, while I'm delivering this pizza to a $500,000 house with, you know, your husband is a banker at Chase and you're a chemist at, uh, at Gore, and you're going to argue over a $13 pizza, and you're going to screw the 17-year-old high school kid delivering it. That's cool. That's, that's, but then the kids see that. So how do you, how do you change that mentality? It's, in, it's bred in them. Yeah. yeah. I think you are a product, product of your environment most times. But um, I want to ask you one final question that hopefully anybody listening can use and that is, if you can give one piece of information with your experience, you've seen thousands of kids through your through your time here and through your life. What do you tell them about? I don't know about how to be successful, but how to enjoy life in a way that you can also be successful. Because money is important, but I think there's a balance there. That inverted U curve, where if you're on the left side of that inverted U curve and you're too poor, you're unhappy. But if you're on the right side and you're making too much, it doesn't really matter, and you're you're getting more unhappy. So you want to meet in the middle. Yeah. So so what do you tell kids about how to kind of love love their life? So the one statistic I use that's a it's a national statistic is uh, seventy thousand a year. So you're no happier past a national average. Now Chester County is a pretty expensive place to live, but you're no happier past seventy thousand dollars a year income. So that's kind of showing you as a is that Biggie Smalls or Jay-Z, I forget, but uh, more money, more problems. Mm-hmm. So more money doesn't actually make you happier. But I always say money buys you the experiences with your friends and family. So you have to make enough to actually do the things you want to do. And then on that same note, sometimes your your passion can actually be your job because your passion will not will no longer be your passion if you turn it into work. I love working on vehicles, but I would never be a full-time car mechanic because then it would not be my passion. Uh, so you got to find out what you're good at, too, because sometimes you can figure out figure out how to love what you're good at. You know, if you suck at something, it's really hard, but you love it. If you struggle with it all the time, it's going to make you pretty unhappy. So figuring out something you're good at and that you can actually make money with and tolerate. And, and I would say it also grow. Grow with it, too, because... If you're stuck in the same position as you were 10 years ago, it gets pretty old. There's one thing now, like, uh, teaching grows because of what you do and the kids you have. Um, the students I have now are much different than the kids I had 15 years ago. So that, that is something, something with a job that has changed. So figuring out what you're good at and also you can make money at, but that money will afford you to actually do what you really want to do. So that's the way I, I kind of look at life. Yeah, I just want to thank you again for your time and and the lessons that you've been able to teach me through my high school career. It's been indispensable, really. I think coming through your class, you learn a ton. So thank you again. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. Yep, Next and uh, if you guys would like to be featured on the show or have an idea or a topic that you'd like to be asked, please email me at bjames at myagsd. And until next time, thank you.